Hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast, Your Life Transform, The Journey to Become a Better You. Um, Today, we are going to be talking once again about the COVID-19 virus because I think that's important and we're all going through this. And my next couple podcasts will kind of focus on different aspects of it. Uh, Today, the topic is going to be Let's Talk COVID. I've invited my friend of many, many years, Dr. Megan Williams, who's board certified in primary care and also does did wellness. She's currently in the trenches in um, San Antonio and working in the emergency room directly with this virus. And she's also founder of covidsa.org. And you can go to that website. She's down in San Antonio, kind of in the trenches, um, working this COVID virus. So I've brought her on the show today, and we're going to kind of talk about it. So hello, Dr. Williams. Hi. Thank you for having me. No, of course. Um, so we are here talking about this, and we've both spent many hours and many sleepless nights just thinking about different things that we can do to help combat this. I know in our respective fields, we're both seeing this. We're both kind of trying to treat it and wrap our heads around what's going on and kind of both going through the same things as far as struggles. So let's talk about some of the things. First of all, why did you set up COVID Essay? So COVID Essay basically was born out of a desire um, or really a recognition that unfortunately the response initially in San Antonio was less than ideal um, as far as the number of testing, uh, testing that was going on. Um, And so basically the goal was to kind of uh, really figure out how we could best impact the community to increase testing and um, really help combat coronavirus, the coronavirus epidemic. No, I think that's, I think that's a great idea. One of the things that I feel, and I don't know how you feel about this, is in general, we kind of started a little bit behind the curve on this and now it's spreading pretty widely and obviously affecting everybody and affecting our economy. I felt like one of the biggest things here in the U.S. is we just did not have enough tests um, to test people. And I think that was a lot of the concerns in general. And now that we're uh, the test is more available, clearly there's going to be more people who are going to be positive. Um, And then there's also kind of this thing where now our labs are getting kind of backed up. So what are you in general um, looking for as far as when to test or you you feel like we should be testing everybody? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, you know, initially there's a bigger issue and that's one of supply. Um, As you know, we were kind of talking about this earlier, there was not a great supply Um, The U.S. had kind of declined using the World Health Organization's um, testing um, capabilities. And so due to that, we didn't have a lot of testing. We still don't have a lot of testing available. And so with that in mind, I think um, there's actually a meeting with Bear County uh, Health District, Metro Metro Health District, um, earlier this evening. And they kind of liberalized the the testing guidelines. And I think that that it's it's a good thing. So basically, you know, um, healthcare workers or people that are otherwise high-touch contacts, um, people that are, are household contacts of people that are COVID positive. Um, and actually, let me back up. So high risk would be the people that are household contacts of people that are COVID positive. Um, the, the kind of medium risk would be the healthcare workers or people that have a prolonged exposure to people who are COVID positive. positive. 
Um, the medium risk as well would be the people with comorbidities like diabetes or asthma. Those would be kind of medium uh, risk. And then of course, the, the kind of lower risk, they used to cl classify it as lower risk, but now they're saying unknown risk, which we know to be true because a lot of the carriers of COVID are asymptomatic. And so um, as I see it, the high risk tiers and the medium risk tiers should be tested. Mm. Yeah, well, that would be kind of a lot of people um, that need to be tested, essentially. So essentially, you're saying people who have a COVID positive and they're living in the same household. So you live in your COVID positive, you live in the same household, you're obviously at high risk. I think a lot of them are being tested. Um, for the most part, I guess the concern is, is this medium risk where you have someone who has an autoimmune disease or diabetes or even obesity um, and they have symptoms and they may or may not be getting tested positive, as well as a lot of the healthcare workers that aren't getting tested positive. So we all know kind of some of the precautions to take, such as six feet, you know, social distancing. I think a lot of us are doing that. Most of the cities in Texas or counties are pretty much on shutdown right now. Um, what are some of the other things that you you are recommending to patients that you see in the ER? Um, so in terms of reducing spread? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, you already really touched on this, um, Dr. Richard, Dr. Hamilton. The, um, the bigger thing is social distancing. Um, I can't say that enough. Uh, the big deal with social distancing is that when you look at, at the spread, I mean, hands down, the best way to kind of help combat the spread is obviously not to have the spread in the first place. Um, I think the other thing, hand washing, hand washing is gonna be absolutely key. Um, with soap, ideally with soap. Um, soap, the interesting thing about soap is that it's not, it doesn't have to be antimicrobial. It's really the mechanical rubbing process. So 20 seconds, tops of hands, in between fingers. Um, it's the mechanical removal um, of the, the, the bacteria in addition to the soap, but the, like I said, it doesn't have to be antimicrobial for that reason. Um, so yeah, social distancing, hand washing, um, and then staying at home. For those patients that are truly high risk, the reality of the situation is, is that social distancing shouldn't even be an option for them. They really just need to stay home because if you're at home, you can't, you can't get, get sick. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are doing that. I think the point that you made about it doesn't have to be antimicrobial necessarily hand soap because a lot of times you go to get hand soap antimicrobial in the store, you can't find it. Um, and it's actually the mechanical washing um, that kind of takes all the, the bacteria the, or the viral load, well, and bacteria for that matter. What about hand sanitizer? I've heard that hand sanitizer 60% or above helps mm -hmm. to decrease, but yeah. does it truly kill the virus? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, high, um, high concentration alcohol is actually on the EPA's list for... Um, it's called, the, I guess, the endless, so things that will actually uh, kill the virus. Um, high concentration alcohol, though, is not typically what you find in hand sanitizer. And so point being is that hand sanitizer, 60% or higher hand sanitizer is appropriate for washing your hands um, in between patients or, or, you know, as needed. But if your hands are visibly soiled, um, soap and water. Soap and water is going to be the best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And so... Essentially, all these hand sanitizers are sold out everywhere. You can't find it. 
And really what people need to know is that truly soap and water is actually better than the hand sanitizer as far as like killing the virus and not spreading the virus. So I just kind of wanted to emphasize that point. The other thing I wanted to talk about is mask because you see people kind of walking around with the mask. Um, So let's differentiate like what exactly are the masks doing? Like I think, and you probably would agree, some of these homemade masks, Mm -hmm. I would some people say are better than nothing. I honestly think they're not helpful at all and potentially would be worse. The bandanas that people are kind of putting around their mouth, I actually don't think they do really much at all. Mm-hmm. They potentially prevent droplet spread from you going to someone mm-hmm. else, but then you're just kind of soiling your bandana, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the different types. There's the surgical mask, mm-hmm. the N95. Apparently, I've seen people with even higher than that with the the actual respirator mask, and then there's these bandera, uh, bandanas that people are using. What are your thoughts on those? Sure. So um, starting, I guess, really to kind of address your comment on the um, on the surgical mask, you know, I think it's really great, and I feel bad kind of saying this because there's been so many efforts, so many community-based efforts to make these fabric um, uh, mm-hmm. bandana yeah, you know, masks, and, and it's so appreciated, and, and it comes from such a nice place. Um, there's actually a study that, that, that was done in Vietnam that shows that, that these masks, as, as Dr. Hamilton just said, these masks can actually, um, that they're completely useless. Other studies that show that they're only 30 to 50% as effective as surgical masks. And so with that being um, said, it's really important to keep in mind, number one, that if you are going to use a cloth mask, um, that you need to keep them clean. You need to keep them dry um, because a lot of the, the the inefficiencies of the mask were related to the fact that people were wearing them for prolonged periods of time and they were getting moist and all these things kind of um, affect and actually well harboring more bacteria, more bacteria right? and diseases. And so, um, so that's the first thing with the, the cloth mask. So I guess I would say that I feel that the cloth mask could be an acceptable, acceptable alternative if you keep them clean, if you keep them dry. Um, but they're still going to be very much second place to the surgical mask. The surgical mask, I would say, in the CDC, it looks like they're going to come up. Um, they're coming up on on giving this guideline. Um, they've kind of waffled back and forth, but I, I would anticipate that they're probably going to say that the surgical loop mask is appropriate for universal use. Um, I have mixed feelings about that. I think that clinically it's the right thing. I think the surgical loop masks are superior to the the cloth masks. However, as you know, we have a a PPE, uh, personal protective equipment shortage. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that they should really be giving the guideline. Um, But yeah, the surgical loop mask, um, those are, so quick note, white side in, blue side out, Mm -hmm. um, go around the ear. Um, those are, are efficacious in terms of preventing um, some degree um, of, of kind of droplet spread to you, um, but also preventing you from giving droplet spread to other people. Um, and then, of course, the N95 is the most ideal um, because for us, you know, in contact with all these patients, um, if anything happens to become aerosolized, if the, the, the virus, starts, you know, becomes aerosolized, you know, let's say a nebulizer treatment or whatever, um, then we have an N95 that actually would prevent that from getting into our airways. So those are kind of the different levels. And then of course, you said the respirator, mm-hmm. which is kind of the, the, the BMW, right? So it's a, the, the high top of the line, um, which, uh, yeah. So just so you know, the respirator mask you see like in, if you see movies where like the gas mask almost, like that's kind of similar to what some of these respiratory masks Um, They really keep a lot out. Of course, there's different filters that can go on them, but a lot of my healthcare coworkers are wearing them, and I 
haven't had the guts to wear them yet because I don't feel like I'm in a war zone yet. I've just been sticking to the N95 or the surgical mask, but those are actually, if someone has positive COVID, probably one of, I'd say one of the best ones um, to use in those particular sh situations and shield. Like even at work, we're, we're both pretty shielded because um, at this point working in the trenches, you have to assume that they have it in order to protect them and protect ourselves. And that's um, a really good point, Dr. Hamilton, that I think really needs to be made for any of the healthcare workers that are listening right now. We really need to be treating all of these patients, any patient that comes, as if they have COVID. Um, point being with that is if you are approaching them in that way, what ends up happening is that you're protected in any event. So COVID positive or not, um, if you have your mask on, um, and I would really encourage healthcare workers too. Like for me, I started wearing my respirator and my mask. You know, it, it's really a question of I need to be alive to be able to continue to take care of them. So I know that some patients, but you know, by and large, the reaction's been pretty positive. Mm -hmm. They understand that I'm doing it for their protection as well as mine. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah. I, no, I agree. I agree. I think that's great. Be, believe it or not, I actually have a couple facilities. I do some wound care um, surgery and um, in facilities, and I have some facilities that don't want their people wearing masks because it's going to um, scare the residents. Yeah. But I'll be honest, I, I've I've worn my mask in every facility, and people, you know, they understand, and I just explain I'm protecting not only myself, but I'm protecting you also. It's, Amen. I mean, everybody knows what's kind of going on. Um, I quite frankly find that breathtaking that administrators would not value. I guess it's a discussion for a different day, mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm glad to hear that you're doing that because to me it's inappropriate. I mean, yeah, protect mm -hmm. yourself, do it. No, I agree. The other thing that you mentioned that I kind of want to touch on because I mentioned this in my last podcast is like at that time when I did the last one, we were pretty much saying that COVID was droplet and I questioned was it aerosolized because now we have to go to these kind of more the n95 mask mm -hmm. and the respirators and and it's like if it's not aerosolized then why do we have to wear those types of masks it wasn't really made clear when it first came out but the fact that it's spreading so quickly which is kind of the scare with corona in general is the spread you question that is it just that readily of it like in the air like yeah. you walk through it and you can catch it what are your thoughts i think that's a really good point because i think the the bigger issue is yeah why is cdc making guidelines or making recommendations for n95s if it's truly not um, yeah if it's if know, it's droplet only right so I, I, a couple of things there are studies um looking at it being airborne and on surfaces um for uh for example the the cruise the princess cruise they found um, evidence of viral particles even 14 days after the ship was uh, evacuated. So I, I think the bottom line, the take home message with this is that there are a lot of things that we really don't understand. And so with that being said, I think that the CDC is probably erring on the side of precaution or of, of caution to really make sure that, that everybody's doing everything they absolutely can to, to cover just in case it's, it's airborne. Um, I think the reality of the situation is, and, and this is just me, me theorizing, at the end of the day, I think what's going to come out is that it's not airborne, um, that it's droplet only. But I think um, when you look at the r naught, which is the, the kind of um, how contagious something yeah, the is, yeah, it's, right. it's two to three times more contagious than the regular coronavirus and the regular, um, you know, cold, common cold. And so with that being in, held in mind, like, 
two to three times more contagious, it, it then makes sense, at least to me, this perception of it being airborne, it's just that it's that darn contagious. So like, you know, I sneeze and I touch a, touch a surface and someone comes behind me and white rubs their eye, you know, whereas with the common cold, that might've been something that doesn't develop into a cold with coronavirus or COVID-19, it does. So I suspect that it's still droplet, but the bottom line is, is that I, I agree with CDC guidelines in that we just don't know. Yeah. And honestly, yeah, for me, I'm air, I'm airing on the side of airborne because like it's it's just spreading so quick. You're right. The R zero, the, the the spread is is just so high. It's it's that's what's so concerning. So your thought is that it just is so like highly infective mm-hmm. that people are getting it versus um, other potential common codes or viruses are not as infective for certain people. So let's kind of talk about that some more. So my first question is how i've i've actually saw some studies that it does last in the air a very short amount of time but it mm-hmm. can last in the air um for minutes um what have you seen as far as surfaces so the whole princess because for the whole two week thing came from that cruise ship but is can it really can somebody really be infected that long and and what have you seen well so it's important to note that with the cruise ship um what was found was not actual kind of full viruses it was virus particles and so once again, it's not clear. The infectivity of, of the virus particles is not clear. And so there was traces of the, the virus up to 14 days out, but how... So that she's saying essentially, she's not sure if those traces actually would infect people just because there were traces. Okay, yeah, correct. Yeah, mm. yeah. So um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's the real question, right? So we know that, that there's traces left behind, but really what is the impact? What is the reality? in a clinical sense of, of those traces. So yeah. how long can it last on surfaces and infect somebody? So um, to my knowledge, and you know, to, I apologize to the audience because this is something that I wanted to do more research on because I know that there is, in terms of the porosity, so depending on how porous the surface is, the duration that coronavirus lasts um, on surfaces can vary greatly. Okay. Um, the last thing that I read said three to four hours um, on a surface, um, I don't know uh, which surface that was, but I would assume that the more porous surfaces, that it lasts longer, and the less porous surfaces, um, it would uh, not last as long. But the point being, the spread is the same. It's they you got it from a droplet. Somebody wiped their nose, somebody sneezed or coughed on a surface, and then you go behind and touch that surface, and it's not just touching. Now it's on your skin. It also has to get onto some type of mucous membrane. So guys, this just in, so New New England and Journal of Medicine, um, they just published a study that that tested how long viruses can remain stable on different kinds of surfaces. Mm. And so they found it was still detectable on copper for up to four hours and on cardboard for up to 24 hours and on plastic and steel for 72 hours. So I guess it's not necessarily the porosity because, you know, obviously steel is not super um, porous. Mm -hmm. But um, so... So yeah, a high bottom line is a high variable amount of, of, of lifespan on these services. Um, but still they said in all of these scenarios, there was a very rapid decrease um, of the viral load on each of these surfaces. And so the risk from, from touching them over time is gonna decrease. So once again, the take home is, is that viruses are not super stable outside of our bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, they're supposed to be in our yes. bodies. That's where they're comfortable. UV light um, destroys them. 
but to keep in mind that that once again, you know, using using that princess, the data from princess um, cruise line, you know, 14 days still having viral particles, um, you know, and and I'm sorry, just looking at the the, the New England Journal um, article again, it says you know particles. It's not very clear about how many particles you need to actually become infected. If the virus is very potent, you might need just 10 uh, particles get infected, while others you might need millions. And so the crazier kind of proposition with that is with the Princess um, cruise ship, is if it was there in 14 days later, and you only need a particle to get sick, well, the presence of particles in general tells us that, gosh, yeah, it could last that long, and people yeah. could get that, could get sick 14 days out. I mean, that's a long time. Mm-hmm. So it's important. That's why people are kind of Cloroxing and, and disinfecting because even if somebody does sneeze or whatever, once you clean that surface, it's it's gone. So that's why it's very important. Like when I go to work, for example, I, I clean everything that I'm going to touch. Um, before I touch it at home, I often go back at least once a day and clean the high touch surfaces, even in my own home either a Lysol spray or Clorox, um, light switches, toilet flushes, you know, just kind of things like that because um, a, a, an easy clean of that can kind of get rid of these particles. Um, and so I just kind of want to reiterate your thoughts on this. Um, if they get it on the skin only, will they be infected? Well, I mean, that that um, that really kind of speaks to what is the, is the skin surface broken? Mucous membranes, 100%. So mm-hmm. if you got a droplet on a mucous membrane, eyes, mouth, Correct. nose, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, if they have a break in their skin, absolutely. I would say yes, yes. Mm-hmm. But if you just like touch a surface and you have closed, I, don't, I think the likelihood of that is low. Okay. And I just kind of want to reiterate high viral load, um, kind of what Dr. William was saying, like there's different like in the potency, there's different loads that viruses can carry. And so essentially what this article was saying, what she was saying is that in the event you have a particle that has a lot of the virus in it, which means high viral load, the chances of you catching it is higher than of a particle that has less of a load. Um, And that's kind of with any virus. So just to kind of reiterate that for those who kind of didn't understand that. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is, you we had talked about earlier about blood type so mm-hmm. i thought that was very interesting mm-hmm. can you kind of expand on blood type and- yeah so um i actually had a patient ask me this question and my first impulse was you know i don't know how many of you guys remember there was like a you know what is your blood type diet and it yeah. was really de- debunked and i was like well of course not blood type doesn't have anything to do with this but the interesting thing guys is that it actually does there was a a, a study that had what we call a strong end meaning that there was a lot of people that participated in 2000 people and what came from this study was that people with blood type a are more likely to get uh contract uh covid and then more importantly people with blood type o usually have better clinical outcomes um which is pretty you know encouraging at least for for those of us that have low type blood not me it's (laughs) very very common um and so it portends it, it it predicts a a a good outcome for uh, patients with um, that blood type. So yeah, there actually is some evidence, pretty pretty strong evidence that blood type correlates with outcomes. Mm, that's very interesting. And then we're both into wellness. Um, how do you feel about things that we can do currently 
to either boost our immunity or prevent the virus or if we get the virus or feel sick. And I'm not talking about getting the ICU sick because that's a whole different type of treatment. But just, you know, we're feeling kind of sick at home, like flu-like symptoms, cough, code. We're both seeing a lot of patients in the ER with these kind of symptoms. Um, what can doctors recommend or what can patients do to kind of treat this at home? I'm into antioxidant therapy. I know you are too. What are your thoughts on some of the treatments? Well, so in thinking about this, guys, I think first and foremost, I want to say that the, the first line of treatment you know, thinking holistically is making sure that you're getting enough sleep, making sure that your 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 diet is balanced, making sure that you have adequate amounts. You know, like Franchelle said, of, of uh, Dr. Hamilton said it, like of antioxidants, vitamin C, vitamin D, um, you know, zinc. These are all very important things um, to have, just kind of in your baseline um, habits to help prevent illness. Now, once you're acutely ill, um, your question, I guess, was a couplefold. Once you're acutely ill, mm -hmm. um, you know, making sure that the minute that you have symptoms, uh, as far as the evidence is concerned for, um, gosh, I'm sorry, for zinc, initiation, early initiation of zinc appears to be important in terms of how much the zinc is really gonna be able to help you. So the minute that you have those symptoms to, to start on the zinc, how much um, zinc would you recommend? So the recommended daily allowance is eight milligrams of zinc for females and then 11 for males um, on a daily basis. Um, it's also important to note vitamin C is water soluble. It's really hard to overdose with vitamin C. Um, I believe it's thousand. Yeah. So a thousand milligrams mm -hmm. per day that's recommended. Yep. yep. So point being with that, um, vitamin C and zinc on a daily basis, you really can't go wrong. And yeah, and that's and I'll be honest, that's kind of things that I do for preventative. Um, in like kind of more sicker patients, I I even give you know I'd like to do IV therapy, and I even give higher doses of both vi of vitamin C in order to kind of get it's a very powerful antioxidant. Um, and so these are for patients who aren't sick enough to go to the hospital, but either A, you want kind of preventative and kind of boost your immune system, or B, you're starting to feel sick and you want to kind of catch it early. The other thing that Dr. Williams kind of pointed out is sleep. Sleep, everyone hopefully should know by now, can actually decrease your immune system. And so that's as we're up here talking with <laughs> lack of sleep we're like make sure you guys get some sleep even though we're not sleeping <laughs> but that is one of the important things that you can also do to try to kind of prevent yourself from getting sick so if you ha have not been sick and hopefully you have not um, there are other preventative things that you can do so I just want to recap we discussed talked about social distancing Washing your hands using soap and water, that's the best, over hand sanitizer. Um, surgical mask if you're going out. And I would honestly recommend, um, like, uh, yeah, if you're going out and about, if you have a cough, definitely stay covered because um, you don't want to give it to someone else. And, and everybody with a cough doesn't have COVID, but again, you have to, at this point in time, we have to treat everybody like they do. Um, the other thing is um, wipe down your surfaces. Uh, with disinfectant and if you're switching if you're working still and you're coming behind somebody make sure you're wiping down your surfaces with disinfectant because it can last on those we kind of talked about that and then some kind of preventative things making sure you're getting sleep I would probably start on zinc and vitamin C now and multivitamin and then in general just healthy eating and I've stressed that in other podcasts how it can be effective but um, just keeping yourself healthy now we're all at home this is the time now we can 
start cooking healthy, exercising, kind of doing the things that we need to do in general to take care of our bodies. Uh, Dr. Williams, do you have anything else to... Um, yeah, I think really, uh, I think that's a good summary, uh, Dr. Hamilton. Really, the, the bigger message that I want to get out to people is that, um, you know, first, really kind of two two parts. One is that the, the social distancing and staying home is going to be absolutely key. Um, you know, Dr. Fauci was quoted as saying that there's a certain inevitability that everybody at some point in time will have this. But really, the goal is to delay um, so that we're not all sick at the same time. The implications of all of us being sick at the same time is that the, the healthcare system cannot support everybody being It'll sick be at the same time. Yeah. yeah, totally overwhelmed. Um, and then the more important thing too is that for the older patients that that, that that contracted is, you know, mortality rate for patients greater than 80 years old now is about 15%, estimated to be about 15%. That's huge, guys. That's like, you one know, five. yeah, one five. Yeah. Um, and, and so in thinking about that, stay home, stay home, um, stay away, uh, make sure that you're doing the social distancing. Um, the other thing too that I think is important to comment on is, is the testing. The testing has to occur. That's not anything that anybody can do, um, but just as a general comment out there is that the testing is so incredibly important to do what we call flattening the curve. Because obviously if you know that you have it, you're able to stay home. You're, the people are more apt to you know, not to go to work. If you're positive, you're not gonna go to work. And so really um, that's, that's kind of the things that, that Dr. Hamilton and other associates of mine are really working on is to really try to see how can we increase the amounts of tests that are out there. Yeah, because there are asymptomatic carriers, and I know people are talking about this on the news, and, and in general, there are so many people who are potentially exposed or who have it, and they just don't know, and those are the ones that are can potentially infect, infect other people and get them sick. Um, they may not get sick from it or, or and, you know, and, and pass away from it, but then if they have other people that they are around that has decreased immune system, um, the goal would be for all of us to get tested. I guess, what do you do in situations where, and I guess you wouldn't even know, but you mm -hmm. have no symptoms, so you wouldn't even present anywhere to potentially get tested. Like, there's not really much to, it's just, the only thing you can do is just the stuff that we've already been talking about. Stay at home, mm -hmm. social distancing. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's not really much else you can do. Because even now in, in the ERs, like, if you have the symptoms, we're not even able right now to test everybody mm -hmm. um, at, all. at all. Yeah, we're not even able to do that right now. And so, again, we're both we're kind of working on it and figuring out a way for it to become more available. There are tests that are going to be a little bit more rapid and more available, but we've got to wait on that. So in the meantime, we all have to do our part and, and kind of um, learn from this and figure out other things to do during this time, which... We will also talk about on, on future podcasts some of the things that we can do while we're under this kind of um, shutdown, lockdown, quarantine type of thing. Well, thank you, Dr. Williams, for joining us once again on the podcast, Your Life Transformed. Thank you guys all for listening. If you have any comments, please leave a message. Please um, like this podcast, subscribe to the podcast, and share it. Um, and we want everybody to kind of know what's going on in our take and and, you know, I mean, with, I know we're getting a lot of different conflicting messages on this, but, um, you know, we often are looking at the research and looking at the data and really won't put any recommendations out there that's not clear. And if they are not clear, then we'll clearly state that. So thank you all for listening, Dr. Williams. Thank you for joining oh, thank us. Thank you. And we will see you next time on the podcast, Your Life Transformed.